It's no exaggeration to say that COVID-19 has changed how we travel forever. Now that offices are reopening, many people are driving to work in order to avoid public transport. But do any of us want to go back to the office after discovering the flexibility of working from home? Or maybe like many, you've joined the lycra-clad brigade of mammals commuting on their bikes. However we commute, it's certainly going to look different to pre-pandemic transport. Here to break down the new world of transport for us is Owen Emsley, Senior Associate. Welcome, Owen. Thanks, Kat. So it seems like a bit of an obvious question, but what impact has COVID had on transport in Australian cities? Well, the first thing is that during lockdown, surprise, surprise, people moved around the city less than they usually did. So firstly, all modes of travel were less common, less public transport trips, less driving, less walking. When people re-emerged after lockdown, a lot of people felt safer not using public transport and in a lot of cases, driving instead. So driving bounced back faster than transit. Driving is now back at pretty normal levels, and while public transport use is still about 30% lower. Foot traffic at suburban train stations is something around half the normal levels. There's also been an increase in cycling. So some of the people who used to take public transport and maybe don't feel comfortable doing that have moved to cycling. Although it could also be a good exercise option during lockdown that people picked up. Some of us found ourselves filling our recycling bin pretty well with empty wine bottles during lockdown. Others, it seems, picked up some more, so some healthier habits. So that's that's good for them. And one of the things we, we saw as well is that the impact was different in different parts of the city. The CBDs in particular have been affected very heavily. All CBDs are well below their usual foot traffic. It's even more noticeable in Melbourne where restrictions on gatherings have been in place longer. But foot traffic in December was around 40% of the pre-pandemic level in Melbourne's CBD and around 60% of pre-pandemic levels in Sydney and Brisbane CBDs. So it really has a significant impact. I mean, we assumed that, but it's good to actually hear some of the numbers around that as well. And certainly my recycling bin was filled with both wine bottles and cycling kits. So you can do both. (laughs) Excellent. So I want to know what the likely long-term impact of this kind of change is going to be as we come out of COVID. I use that term very loosely. It is hard to be sure what will happen and and how quickly it'll happen. But there's likely to be competing effects on transport. So for one thing, population is likely to be lower. So net migration to Australia fell from about 240,000 in 2018-19 to minus 72,000 in 2020-21. Migration may well recover. It might bounce back pretty quickly, but the population will probably always be at least a little bit lower than what it would have been had COVID not happened. And population growth has been a big driver of transport trends and particularly the the need for for new infrastructure. So that's one impact. Changing mode preference, which we already talked about a bit. Are people going to be happy to sardine back onto peak hour trains once there's a vaccine? Maybe, Maybe there's going to be a lingering effect of people being less comfortable. And maybe new habits will have formed. For some people who've switched to driving, they might actually decide they quite enjoy it and 
but certainly long enough for new habits to have stuck. So different impacts in different parts of the city is the other thing I mentioned earlier. Will travel to and from the CBD be affected differently to other trips around the city? Maybe so. Some traffic signal data that we've seen suggests, for example, that some outer Melbourne suburbs have as much traffic as before, but some inner and eastern suburbs are lower. So what the impacts will be in different parts of the city could be is, is quite uncertain. Trips to the airport is one that I think will be interesting to watch. Obviously, at the moment, international travel is practically non-existent and interstate travel is very low. There's also the economic impact. If international travel is a bit of a luxury purpose, uh, purchase rather, that could be impacted. And then, of course, there's working from home is uh, one of the things that has happened and could have an impact on travel as we come out of COVID. One of the interesting things I noticed when I obviously got wasn't allowed to go to Sydney for Christmas, I decided to go to Cairns instead for a holiday. And it's the quietest I've ever seen the airport in my entire life. We just drove up and no cars there, no taxis, no one in the airport. And I took a photo of it because I've never seen the departures so quiet in my life. So I want to tap into that kind of working from home idea because, you know, we're promised this working from home revolution and some businesses are obviously more into working from home than others. Do you think that the changes that we've made to our transport patterns and and the working from home revolution will stick? Well, that's the $64 question. Um, Some people certainly love the flexibility and comfort of working from home. They enjoy making use of the time that used to be spent commuting. Others miss the social side of work uh, or find it difficult to work in their home setup. Certainly people with, uh, with young children found it very difficult working from home when the schools were closed, but even otherwise, some people were have more of a preference than others to to working from home. It's unclear how much of it will stick. But we've seen surveys that show that 71% of people who worked from home during the pandemic said that they would like to work from home more often in the future. But will they really? It's still too early to tell. We saw before the pandemic around 5% of workers in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane were working from home. It was about 4% in Perth and Adelaide. So there's certainly a lot of scope for upside if there's a lot more people who could work from home. It remains to be seen and employers' preferences will be really important as well. Some businesses are probably looking forward to saving on office rental costs, thinking if uh, half their workforce are at home, then they uh, only have to have half as much office space. Others would be concerned about doing new business in a in a world where people don't often meet face-to-face. I looked at a few quotes from CEOs, some of whom were quite enthusiastic about working from home and some less so. It amused me to notice that the CEO of Netflix was one of the least enthusiastic. Possibly uh, Netflix have the data on how, how much Netflix people are watching while they're at, uh, at home, supposedly working from home. Maybe they've got some confidence in the, the product they're putting out there that it'll distract people from working. Could have something. To I do mean, with who it. doesn't like a little bit of background noise while they're while they're <laughs> working? I mean, I mean, we could do a whole another podcast on that. But like, there's some benefit to having just that kind of ambient talking in the background. I find it sometimes <laughs> makes me more productive. Yeah, maybe so. That's but... not my confession. I'm watching Netflix. <laughs> Work, anyone's <laughs> listening. But um, anyway, it certainly seems reasonable to think that more people will work from home after the pandemic than did before. How many more is far more uncertain, but it seems reasonable to think that more will. 
one of the things I want to look at too, because I think I think it'd be interesting to see how the proportion of people who want to work in the office that have small children at home. You've got Grattan's youngest researchers in your house. <laughs> but what does this decision to work from home actually mean for transport? Yes, well, that's even more uncertain in a lot of ways. Many things are possible and it's hard to know. There might be less demand for roads and public transport at peak times if less people are commuting. Uh, one of the things that's been talked about is whether people are going to look to relocate to to the regions or to to outer suburbs or to satellite towns thinking that the hour-long commute that used to put them off maybe if you only have to do that a couple of days a week and you can work from home the other days that might seem more appealing so it may be that there's more people looking to do um, commuter travel from satellite towns and regional centres we did see during the second half of 2020 that more people did move to the regions, particularly in Victoria, but I think that trend was also in other states. But to what extent that was just to escape lockdown in the short term, it'll remain to be seen. There's a few things that are quite possible. Maybe the, the CBD will be have less prominence in the city going forward if there's a lot less office workers on location. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit is whether one of the things that impacts air travel we talked about earlier will be whether people taking less business trips. I've certainly heard people remark that now that they've gotten Zoom and other platforms working pretty well to do meetings remotely, they'll be far less inclined to jump on an interstate plane. So whether demand for business travel will, will ever get back to its previous levels, there's a, a lot of unknowns in that. And people who have moved out to regional areas uh, during lockdown in Victoria, I mean, they might like living out there and choose to remain in the area. I mean, I think we're going to see that dramatic shift in kind of behaviours and we're already seeing an increase in terms of uh, real estate where people are looking for larger homes that are potentially further out from the city so that they can have more space working from home. I know we sound like we're peering into the crystal ball a little bit because we can't predict what's going to happen next. Obviously, we didn't predict that 2020 was coming and look what happened there. I want to know what are some of the kind of policy responses we could put in place in order to deal with these potential changes to transport? Well, one of the things we're recommending is to reassess some of the large projects that have been been approved, been signed off on, and in some cases started construction. We did a report last year showing that we're now living in the age of transport infrastructure mega projects. And a lot of these projects are underway or due to start soon. And one of the things with this uncertainty in population in transport patterns is that the benefits of those projects are far more uncertain than they were before. But they weren't very certain before, but it's definitely the case that you, know, you wouldn't want to bank on having the same amount of use of transport infrastructure or used in the same way as what we, we previously thought. We would recommend hitting pause on some of those projects until we can get a more certain evaluation of the benefits. And if the projects don't add up anymore, don't proceed. So that's one of the things. And there's a couple of other things. Infrastructure Victoria have done some interesting work modelling a number of scenarios. And some of those scenarios have involved more congestion on the roads through people being keener to, to drive and less keen to cram onto public transport. They've recommended a couple of things, one of which is around active transport infrastructure and incentives. I think we've, we've seen that when people feel safe riding, they'll cycle more. Infrastructure Victoria is certainly pushing that as a, a way to try and take some pressure off the road congestion by getting more people cycling. Obviously, that has health benefits and other things as well. And another thing they've talked about, which I think is really interesting, is off-peak charging for public transport. 
So they've recommended having peak and off-peak fares that depend on the direction and mode of travel. Taking a train into the, into the city at peak time would be more expensive. Taking an, a, a bus during off-peak time that's usually pretty empty might cost a bit less. And their idea is that that will uh, better enable, among other things, will better enable social distancing and enable more people to use public transport across the day so it can take a bit of pressure off the off the roads in that way. And also out of the offices as well because if you've got staggered approaches to work times, then that actually increases the social distancing in the office because there's less people at different times. The one thing I do want to ask you about, it's a favourite topic of transport team on the podcast, with all those extra cars going into the city, is it time to put congestion charging back on the policy table? Well, I think it is. If it was wasn't already time it certainly is now congestion charging it is a a, a favorite of ours it's quite clear that in order to make the most efficient use of the infrastructure assets we have the way to do that is to make people pay for the the congestion the externality which is the congestion that they uh, the inconvenience that they cause others through the added congestion so that will make peak hour driving less attractive and make other travel options relatively more attractive. It's something that yeah, governments never never really like. They, they always want to build lots of new roads and cut ribbons and be pictured in hard hats, but they certainly shy away from anything that sounds like a like a new tax. You know, whenever we talk about this, it never gets a lot of support from, from governments, but you know, a lot of the people that are working in transport policy you know, are, are far more supportive. So we're proposing... CBD cord, cord and charges of around $5 at peak times for people going into the into the CBD at peak times. Governments to investigate the costs and benefits of network-wide distance-based time of day charging, which would really be the, you know, the best attempt to take the most scientific approach to, to charging for congestion. So a lot of cities around the world have congestion charging or are heading that way. London, Beijing, Singapore, Stockholm, Milan. Jakarta, among others. And what they've often seen is that there's initial public hostility, but it quickly turns to support when people see how effective congestion charging can be. I mean, congestion charging is one of those things that's very hard to implement politically wise, but it would have significant impacts on the amount of cars that are going into the city and what time of day they're going in as well. If you are more interested in reading about our work on congestion charging, you can read the reports online on our website at grattan.edu.au. I'd like to thank you so much, Owen, for joining us on the podcast. We will certainly have you back on to talk about how things are changing in the transport world this year. I have no doubt about that. If you'd like to continue the conversation with us, please find us on social media on Twitter at Grattan Inst and other social media networks under Grattan Institute. We're also a non-profit organization and we rely on donations from our wonderful listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to Grattan, please visit grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. As always, take care and thanks so much for listening. Thank you.